Good morning. If you have your Bibles, open up and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and we'll be handing one out to you. We're continuing in this first epistle that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. We're entitling it Tough Love because Paul is really trying to set this group of people straight. He's trying to help them out in some of the areas that they were having difficulty in. And we talked about the necessity for them last week to recognize that they belong to Christ, that their identity is found in Jesus. It's not found in Apollos. It's not found in Paul. It's not found in Cephas. But it's found in Christ. And if they start to seek some association with someone other than Christ, then really what they're doing is tearing the body of Christ apart by adding these kinds of divisions. And we talked about that word divisions was a a fabric term that talked about tearing. What we need to do is be mending, have that unity involved with that. And he ended, we ended 17, verse 17 last week, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And this is going to be the springboard for what we talk about the rest of this chapter. The power of the cross. Paul didn't come to them and Try and wow them with words. You see, you might be moved by what someone says. You might even change how you think. It might give your life a different direction, but it does not have the power to recreate life in you. And so Paul said, I have not the desire, whether it's in baptism or in mighty words, to change your life. That comes by the power of the cross. And in verse 18, we pick up and he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. And we'll stop there right now and finish up in a little bit. The cross of Christ, the message is foolishness to those who are perishing. Why would Paul write such words? And more importantly, is why would God make it that way on purpose? In other words, why would God make it so that those who are perishing would think that the cross is foolishness? Because that's exactly what he tells them. 
the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. God's saying, I'm going to do something on purpose. I'm going to make those who are perishing think that the cross is just utter foolishness. Those who are in their own mind intelligent, they're going to think, oh, that's crazy. And we are, are so removed from what the cross means and what it actually was that it's difficult for us to grasp how vivid an impression this is meant to leave. Because the cross was bloody. The cross was shameful. If we were there seeing crucifixion or to see Christ crucified, it was something that we could probably not watch. It would probably make us sick. And to say that God has chosen this to bring about his salvation. People seeing that say, that's absurd. That's ridiculous. Because that's what the word foolishness means. It's absurd. Why would God do something like that? You see, if I were God, I would do things totally different. Why didn't he consult me? I would have made it much more magnificent. So that people would have seen it and been in awe and its wonder, not this bloody mess. That's ridiculous. That's absurd. And so we have our idea of what things should be. What wisdom is to, to change a life. And so we have our Dr. Phil. And we have, you know, our Oprah, and, and we have other people, and maybe it's even ministers and, and Christian leaders who give us advice, and we're like, yes, this is, this is the way we do things. This is our method of, of finding enlightenment and getting better. But you see, the cross is a hard pill to swallow. And those of us who have been there and who have had to deal with the recognition of what this is for, why Jesus died, and why it's necessary for me, we probably stood on another place looking at the cross saying, that doesn't make sense, and had to come to a place where we recognize, oh, this does make sense. It's as if we were living in this other idea of what really was important in life. We're out in left field somewhere. Now, I coached Little League for about 87 years, I think. At least that's what it seemed like. I had three boys, and they all went from, you know, t-ball, where they would hit the ball and just run wherever they felt like running, you know, and have conversations and sit down, and then to, you know, the majors where they would be more competitive. Actually, the parents got more competitive as the years went on. But here, here's a dirty little secret about managing, you know, a little league baseball team. Not all baseball players are created equal. And there are some that you do not put in the infield or they will get hurt. They don't know how to, to really catch a line drive. They're afraid of the ball. And so you don't put them at first base where they're going to hurl the ball at them. You put them in left field. Now, I'm telling you this, and if you were on my team and I put you in left field, I apologize. <laughs> I know I told you it was an important position at the time, and 
And, and I meant it, sincerely. Some, some places it is important, but in Little League, there are hardly any players who can pull the ball to left field. Most of them can just get around and it'll go to right field. You know, it'll stay in the infields. And so left field is where you, you put the sensitive artist. <laughs> the one who likes poetry. The, the, you know, the player who, who, who likes to daydream. Because in left field... That's a little bit more tolerable. It's not supposed to be, but at that age, you just accept it. And so in left field, you put the players who like, you know, watching the butterflies, and you see them, and every now and then the ball get hit, you know, on the bat, and you'll see them wake up. What happened? You know, what happened? Stay in the game, Jimmy. You know, <laughs> stay in the game. And, and, you know, heaven help you if a ball actually makes it out there, and, you know, it, it's dependent on them. Because they're just in a different place. Mentally, they're just not all the time in the game. And sometimes that's how the world is. They're in left field. And the way they see things and how they perceive things in their own mind, it's like they're in their own game. And they group together and they talk about all their wisdom and all those things. And this idea of Christianity and the cross just seems so foolish to them. It doesn't make sense. And it's curious why God would make that the case. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Because Jesus was asked by his disciples... Why do you speak to the multitudes in parables? You got this large group of people. Why don't you just tell it like it is? You're, you're giving these stories that have these meanings. Why are you doing that? And, and his answer is curious in verse 13. He says, This is why I speak to them in parables. Those seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. I, I wonder what the disciples were thinking after Jesus said this. You know, why do you speak to them in parables that they don't understand? And he says, well, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts. And they're probably going, isn't that a good thing? Oh, yeah, yeah, you know. And, and you ever been with someone and, you know, you, two of you are on the same page and maybe you're talking to someone else and you don't quite understand what they're about and you look at each other like, you know, are you tracking with me that this guy isn't tracking at all? You know, you just kind of have this understanding. I just wondered if they grasped what was going on. They hear, but they, they don't. They see, but they don't perceive. They don't understand. And Mark's account of this, instead of it saying that understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them, it says turn and they would be saved. And he's talking about salvation here. And it seems as if Jesus is saying, there are people who are curious, but they don't really care. There are people who hear, but if it isn't what they want, they don't listen. 
If they see something and it's not what they like, they don't really pay attention. If it's not what they want, it doesn't penetrate their lives, their hearts. And it's like what James says, quoting the Proverbs. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Those who really say, I'm hungry, I need something, he just pours it out on them. But those who are out in left field and say, oh, that doesn't really interest me. I'm not concerned with the game. I want to do my own thing. They don't grasp what's going on. And in the same way, the cross of Christ, to those who are content in left field not to pay attention, it's foolishness. It's just foolishness. You don't need to listen to that. that. That doesn't make any sense at all. In verse, back in 1 Corinthians, verse 20, Paul goes on and he goes, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since... In the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Where is the scholar? You know, it's amazing what we can do with technology. Some of these newer cars, they have leather seats where if you press a button, it'll make your butt warm in the wintertime. Wow, that's incredible. They have electronics and things. I mean, our phones, my phone is like, I need it. If I leave my phone at home, I go through withdrawals. You know, it's like, oh, my phone, you know. What if someone texts me, you know? What, what will I do? And we, we have these great things that we've advanced in, but in all our wisdom, in God's mind, it's like you haven't even made it to first base. You haven't found me. You don't know why you were created. You don't know your purpose in life. You don't know the essentials of what life is about. With all your wisdom, with all your understanding, you haven't got a clue. And yeah, we've done amazing things. We've harnessed nuclear fission. You don't know what you're about. About 12 years ago, Billy Graham spoke at the TED convention. TED is kind of a little group. It's technology, entertainment, and design. And it's where kind of these brilliant minds go and they talk about things. Some of them will only speak for about 10 minutes and they'll talk about how they're using biological environments to structure and develop, you know, buildings. And you're like, huh, what are you talking about? And they talk about formulas and they talk about society. They talk about music. They talk about how things are influencing the world. And it's kind of this, you know, place where people go and they speak and it's like, Ooh, who is this doctor? Who is this scientist? Who is this, you know, musician? All these elite people. And Billy Graham spoke there about 12 years ago. And as he was speaking, he was talking about just this. You know, with all our advances, and though they're amazing, we still don't know why we're here, who we are, and how to change our condition. 
And he quoted at that convention Pasquale, who was an architect just of modern civilization. He was the founder of the probability theory. I don't even know what that is, so it's probably something good. He is the creator of the first model of the computer, and he studied in depth the foundations of human suffering and death. He was astounded that people could achieve extraordinary heights in science, art, and human enterprise, yet also be so full of anger, hypocrisy, and human hatred. He said that, there were, that man was a mixture of genius and self-delusion. On November 23rd in 1654, he had a profound experience that changed his life. Later, he wrote in his journal that he absolutely submitted himself to his Redeemer, Jesus Christ. It was he who made the well-known phrase, the heart has its reasons, which reason knows not of. That all our understanding, all our reason, it doesn't satisfy what the heart cries out for. The heart has reasons longing that reason doesn't get. That according to reason is just foolishness. And he came to a place where he recognized his need and what was there within him that was not satisfied by all his learning. Paul says that the Jews in verse 22 demand miraculous signs and the Greeks look for wisdom. They demand signs that God would serve my expectations. It's really a form of idolatry. If you're the son of God, do this. Follow him for the miracles. Prove it. The Greeks, they seek for wisdom. And what, what they're doing is also idolatry. I become the reference point. I, I become the point to what is true, what is reasonable. And because my reference point is the res, reference point, everything depends on how I view it. My wisdom. I remember years ago, I went to China with this group and we went to this one island that was called Macau and was kind of off of Hong Kong and it was uh, basically a gambling uh, island where they had legalized gambling. And so there was a small church there and we went there to, to kind of come alongside that church was there and we all went out to eat afterwards and we're sitting down at this restaurant. I think I ate rabbit or something. I don't know, when you're in Macau, do as the Macaus do, you know. And I was there, and we're sitting at this table, and there was this little petite Asian lady. I don't remember her name, but we were sitting there eating, and in the middle of this meal, all of a sudden, she lets this burp just rip. Just whoop, you know, just it's a beauty, you know. It's like, and we're all sitting there, and, and you see in that culture... That is your sign of, you know, this food tastes good. I'm enjoying it. I'm going to just let it be known. And in that culture, it was perfectly acceptable. Everyone else who was part of the team there, they're eating and they're just like, oh, you know, yeah, nice one. You know, they're just sitting there in our team. We're all like, did that just come out of that little lady? You know, what was that? You see, and if you take yourself and go to this other place, your reference point gets taken and changed completely. And so the Greeks in their wisdom, they said, I'm the reference point. God has to appeal to me if he is going to be true. The Jews said, God has to prove himself to me if he's going to be true. So the Jews sought a sign. Greeks sought wisdom. 
And then he goes on and he says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Now, why was it a stumbling block to the Jews? Christ meant Messiah. Messiah, in their eyes, is triumphant, victorious, conqueror, son of God. It's a rich, powerful. It was a word that meant everything to them. So you say, the Christ, and you have this picture of the one who's going to redeem us, the one who's going to save us, and the one who has power to change our circumstance, triumphant, majestic, the Christ. And then you say, crucified. And crucified meant criminal. It meant shameful. It meant weak. It meant despised. And so here you have Christ, powerful, majestic, crucified, criminal, shameful. And you put them together and they say, no, we can't accept that. It was a stumbling block. They, they tripped over that. How can the Christ be this? It's like homeless president. You know, it's like, it doesn't make sense. How, how, how can you put those two together? It, we're not buying it. It wasn't something that they could accept. And to the Greeks, it was foolishness because it was current at that time. In other words, crucifixion is what you did to people who were criminals. They found some graffiti on a wall, one of the barracks in Palestine. And this is a sketch. It was carved into the wall. And it was a sketch. And what it is is a man on a cross with a donkey head. And it says, Alex, Alexamenos worships his God. And what it was doing is mocking this man who worshiped Jesus. Because a person who dies on a cross is a criminal. It's like if you were in Texas and someone wearing a red jumpsuit and they're going in for that lethal injection. And they get, you know, put to death. And then all of a sudden you come out and you, you know, start, you know, wearing needles, you know, around your, your collar. Or you go and get a tattoo of a needle. You know, oh, wow, that's a cool needle you got there. You know, we have our crosses and we think, oh, wow, that's cool. But at that time, it just didn't make sense. That guy was put to death. He was a criminal. Why are you worshiping a criminal? You're an idiot. It was foolishness. And so to the Jews, the idea of Christ and crucified, just I can't put it together. To the Greeks, to the Gentiles, like that's for criminals. He just was crucified. He died. We, what are you worshiping that for? Why are you worshiping him? Why would you preach Christ crucified? He says, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, verse 24, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. The foolishness of God. God has a way of doing things that seem foolish. He spoke to 
an old man and said, I'm going to use you and make a nation out of you. And I'm going to wait till you're 100 and your wife is 90, Abraham and Sarah. He talks to Joshua as they're going in to conquer this Canaan land. And there's this huge fortified city of Jericho. And Joshua goes to seek the Lord. Lord, what is our strategy to go and take this, this town, to take this, this city? How are we going to do it? Are we going to, you know, lay siege? Are we going to get ladders, catapults, bazookas? What are we going to do, God? How are we going to take down these walls? And God says, I want you to march around the city seven times. Okay, okay, I'm with you. We're going to survey the things. Yeah, we're going to walk around it seven times. Then what? Then what? Then what? Then I want you to blow your trumpets and shout. Okay? Okay? Then what? That's it. What? Yeah, that's it. Let me do the work. That's foolish. God has a history of doing things that in our minds and in our thoughts seem foolish, and they only seem foolish if God doesn't exist. But if God does exist, that changes everything. Now you can lean on it. Now you can put your weight on it. Now you can have faith in it. And the ultimate foolishness is the cross of Christ. Where God says, I am going to place salvation upon him, the cross of Christ. And all the armies of history combined couldn't compare to what Jesus did on that cross, where he takes people who were dead and made them alive. He has changed the face of the world in this one event more than all of the nations in all of history could ever do by the foolishness of the cross. And it's something that we need to recognize. And we need to have this attitude about the Christ. We need to be pleased in it. In other words, don't be ashamed of the cross. It is the power of God to change our lives. Be humble. Recognize that the cross was what was necessary for you to be brought before God. How can you not be humble? How can you get an attitude towards somebody? How can you put someone down for how they're living and not have an understanding of you were in the same boat? You are not righteous in yourself. It took Jesus to cover your sin. Are you now going to put someone else down? So be humble in the light of the Christ crucified. Be grateful. Be thankful. That Christ was crucified for you. And be careful that you don't dilute, polish, or make little the cross of Christ. You know, it's real easy for us to try and make this more palatable. If I tell people, you know, Jesus died for their sins and, you know, it just sounds so harsh and tell them they're perishing, you know, I really... I don't want to go there. I just want to, you know, kind of God's your friend. He loves you. You know, go that route. Be careful. 
because you start changing the gospel and you take away its power. And why would we do that? Paul told the Galatians that if I or an angel came and preached to you any other gospel that you have heard, may they be accursed. Or in other words, may they go to hell. And, you know, just in case he didn't offend him, the first time he repeats it. He says, I'm serious. Because this is the power of God. I remember when I was growing up, we used to have this cereal. It was called Sugar Pops. You guys remember Sugar Pops? They don't call it Sugar Pops anymore because Sugar Pops are bad for you. They call it Corn Pops. Exact same ingredients. But they're not Sugar Pops anymore. They're Corn Pops. You know, we want to try and change things to make it necessary. But what is necessary is the blood of Christ to forgive. What is necessary is that salvation comes because of the cross, because of what Jesus has done. And you can't dilute that without losing the power. And so be careful that you don't dilute the cross and what it is and what it means. He goes on to finish the chapter so we can finish it here quickly. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standard. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. And the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us the wisdom from God. That is, this is what he is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so he brings this conclusion. None of you are that great. You're weak. You're not noble. You're just average Joes. There's nothing special about you. Why are you acting as if you are? It's all about Jesus. It's all about what he's done for you. God is not going to depend on your human strength to support his message. He didn't draft you because you were so good. Some of you played sports, and you know how it went to pick the teams. Going to play five-on-five five basketball, okay, he's with us, okay, I'll take him. And, you know, if there were 11 of you guys, oh, man, someone is last, and someone's going to be sitting on the sideline until someone pukes and gets too tired to play anymore. And Paul is saying, God chose number 11. You guys all want to be strong. You want to be powerful. That means nothing to God. He's going to win the game with the 11th player that doesn't get picked. The one who is weak, he's going to use them to prove what is strong. And every now and then there's someone who is out there in left field who gets a glimpse and an idea of what is going on in the game. And it's as if the Spirit of God taps them on the shoulder and pulls them back into the game. And they say, wow, 
I didn't realize this was going on. A few years ago, I was talking to a young man who had devastated his life with some of the things that he did. He had ruined his career to that point, set himself back tremendously. He had failed in his marriage. He had addictions that were affecting his life and destroying him. And I remember it was a time where he was just broken and just sitting down and as I was talking with him, I was able to tell him, you see, this is why the cross of Christ makes sense. Because where you're at right now and the things that you have devastated your life and devastated others and have totally ruined and in this place of just a pit of, oh my God, what have I done? Who am I? What can be done for me? The shame, it, it's not some pretty words that are going to escape you. You look at a cross that is bloody, that is just a mess, and Jesus says, I'll take care of that. In fact, that's what I represent. The filth of your life, I'll take it, and I'll pay for it, and I will change you right where you're at in the mud, in the mire, in the garbage of humanity, I will bring you up from that. And now it makes sense. Now it's not foolishness. Now I understand that this is what I need for salvation. This is what is necessary to get me out of my humanity and its condition. It is the power of God to change a life and move it from darkness to light, to take someone who was lost and bring them into a relationship with the living God, to bring someone who is broken and make them whole. It is the power of God in the cross of Christ, and it is a necessity for us. And unless we understand that, we won't appreciate it. It'll be foolishness. But once we see the truth of who we are, we see the necessity of what Jesus did for us. And then it becomes the power of God and we cling to it, we hold to it because we need it. And so I don't want to soft coat things when the, the time comes and someone is confronted with the truth of themselves, they need to know that they need a Savior, that they need someone to take away their sin. They need to know about the cross. They don't need someone to say, oh, it's okay, girl, you're fine, don't worry about it. Hey, buddy, don't worry, it's okay, you know, everyone makes mistakes. They need someone to say, you need to go to the cross. You need forgiveness. You need to be changed by the power of God. You need his salvation because without it, you're lost. You're perishing. 
And if it seems foolish to you, then you're still out in left field and you don't know your condition. You don't know what's really going on. But if you understand the need in your own soul, the need in your own life, the need to be washed and cleaned and redeemed, to take what is broken and what you cannot fix and have a life that's mended, then you need the cross of Christ. And it's there for you. And guess what? It is the wisdom and power of God. Those who think, I don't need that. I've got it together. It's foolishness. God's, God has made it so that they would think that. But those who are broken and said, oh, God, have mercy on me. I am in desperate need. He says, I got you covered. Come here. And so the door is open for all of us. If you think the cross is foolishness, I don't know what to tell you. Except that one day, you might need a Savior. And in that day, you will have one if you reach for Jesus. And if you have reached for the cross, trust it to be the power of God. Trust His forgiveness. And allow Him to do work which you and I cannot do of ourselves. It is the power and it is the wisdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, it's amazing how you have designed us and designed salvation. In such a way that, Lord, in itself there is the opportunity to see where we really are at. If we are self-sufficient, proudful, it's foolish. But if we are humble and broken, it's beautiful. And it is powerful. And Lord, our, our desire is for those that we love, for those who are around us, to see the beauty and the power that is in the cross of Christ. To see the love, the mercy, the, the grace that is available for everyone who has need. And Lord, we all have need. And Lord, help us to take this good news, that this message of salvation, to those who we know. Lord, help us to be humble. Help us to be grateful. Help us to be careful. But Lord, we are pleased in what you have done on the cross. And we thank you for it, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that our lives would show this evidence and that you would take us from being weak and frail and useless and use us to be your strength. It is the foolishness of us talking about this message, this story that is able to change the lives of those around us. Lord, give us wisdom to be able to share this effectively. We do ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.